The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm your host. I'm also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school, and I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph Piper. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be with you. In case you are not a regular listener, Dr. Piper is our president here at the seminary and also professor of systematic and homiletical theology. And today we have a special edition of Faith and Practice. It is our PCA, General Assembly Denominational Debrief, for the year 2019. Dr. Pipe is going to share with us some of his thoughts about the Assembly and its results, and then we will address some specific or particular questions from our listeners. But a little bit of detail about the Assembly. It was held in Dallas, Texas at the Hilton Anatole uh, this, um, or last month, at the end of last month, um, for... What was it like a Tuesday through Friday well, morning, kind of, right? Actually, Wednesday afternoon until through Friday noon. That's right. We had committee meetings on the Tuesday and a special conference from the Gospel Reformation Network. But it was um, officially or formally from June 26th through the morning of June 28th. Uh, but Dr. Pipe is going to share with us some of the statistics from the assembly. Um, but one remarkable thing about it is I think one in four commissioners were ruling elders this year, which over the past four years has trended from one in five to one in four. We've gone from about 21% to just about 25% ruling elder participation, which is encouraging. We want that trend to continue. Without further ado, I want to give Dr. Piper all the time he needs to share with us some of his observations about the assembly. Thank you, Zach, and why don't we open with prayer. Almighty God in heaven, you who are exalted on high, glorious, clothed in splendor and majesty, we love and adore you. We praise you as uh, the great King of all and Christ, the King of his church. Uh, We thank you for what your word teaches us about the church and for the way you would have your church governed. We thank you for our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, what you've done through us and with us through the decades and for this assembly now. So as we think about the assembly today, we ask that your spirit would give us insight and faithfulness and truthfulness, and perhaps yet even at least some ideas in terms of what lies ahead. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, Zach, you're right about the statistics. Uh, In fact, we had 1,567 commissioners registered, which I understand is the largest assembly west of the Mississippi River. Uh, And out of that, then 1,160 were teaching elders, 407 were ruling elders. I'm not optimistic as you are. I don't think there's a real trend. I think that there was some efforts from both sides of the church, the confessional people and the national partnership. But this really is horrendous for somebody that claims to be a grassroots uh, denomination. We're going to be talking about some things on faith and practice the next few months. Uh, I was very thankful, as, as you were, Zach, a number of people that we spoke to at the assembly, how our faith and practice podcast in general, particularly on the assembly and on ruling elders, 
uh, was a great encouragement to them. And four ruling elders from the Presbytery of the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, were there due to the podcast. And we want to do more. One of the ideas that a friend of mine just came up with that we'll work on is um, regional buses chartered for ruling elders. And then charter a inexpensive hotel uh, with special rates uh, for men that could not afford normally to come. So the seminary can help give some uh, a coordination to these things. And Birmingham is a great place to get ruling elders there. And we need is going to be much, much less expensive because it'll be held at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. And Birmingham's a less expensive place to live, eat anyway. So, but this will be the. Uh, watershed assembly in the, in the minds of many, and I'll show show why in a, in a few moments. Just to clarify, you're speaking about the next assembly in 2020, 2020. will be the watershed decisive I assembly, at least so. in your opinion. And when you said that uh, the statistics were atrocious, you mean for a denomination that claims uh, parity between ruling and teaching elders to have only about a quarter of the commissioners right. as ruling elders right. is an atrocious ratio. It is, and a denomination with... No ruling elder participation or relative ruling elder participation is destined to go liberal uh, because your progressives are usually in the clerical side at first and then the elders that they uh, infect. So this is something we want to keep addressing, praying about. If you have ideas in addition to what I've just mentioned, uh, scholarships, uh, churches just saying we're going to send our elders whether we can pay the they're going to raise it to 500 next year. So we're going to not have to pay the convention center prices, but they're going to raise the price to 500 next year as well. So there's a lot that we need uh, to do. A little background for our listeners that might not be familiar. When I say that the PCA Assembly is grassroots, uh, when we began in 1973, and I've mentioned this before on podcasts, but it was quite unique what was done. Uh, in part, uh, every church could send at least a teaching and ruling elder, and then it's prorated from there. I think every church now could send two if they could afford it, uh, and then up by membership, an increasing amount of of ruling elders. Uh, and early on, we had uh, had that parity, which is an essential part of our Presbyterian government. It's laid out in our Book of Church Order. It's a very unique thing about the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, our committees, both at the Presbytery and General Assembly level, when there's a commission that acts particularly on behalf of the Presbytery, there has to be an equal amount of ruling and teaching elders, at least three each, to form a quorum on a number of these committees or commissioners. And that was always important. Another important part about grassroots was is that the denominational committees did not have a lot of power, almost no executive power initially. And so uh, they were to implement what the assembly assigned to them. And so the assembly, when it met, then would have what we call committee of commissioners. And every presbytery would rotate year to year. One year, a teaching ruling elder, a teaching elder on committee A. The next year, a ruling elder on committee B. And every presbytery had the right to alternate in that manner. The permanent committees, say missions and Christian education and such as that, would report to the committee of commissioners. The permanent committees would make recommendations, but the committee of commissioners were the ones that addressed the assembly and could uh, be critical of, could vote down. Now that happens supposedly, and actually a couple of cases this year, we actually saw committee of commissioners 
begin to flex muscle for the first time in a long time. And I'll refer to one of those issues in a few, uh, few moments. Uh, but the permanent committees, particularly the uh, directors of those committees, don't like that. And I, I know why. that personally because I was chairman of, the, of one of the committees for uh, five years and really got in trouble for trying to keep the committee accountable to the assembly. And so every year, there's been more and more an encroachment of power. So now power is centralized in the committees. They're making executive decisions. They might report those decisions. They might not report those uh, decisions. And so we've lost the grassroots. And I'll tell you right now, so we can hear from our listeners about this, I'm going to be advocating a delegated assembly organized fairly so that nobody can be kept from going on a regular basis. Uh, but the only way we're going to have a real grassroots assembly at this point is to have a delegated assembly. But more of that in future uh, broadcast. Well, I want to break down the assembly. And this is one of the things. There's way too much other stuff going on, and that's why it gets dragged out and why it's harder for ruling elders to get away from work to be there. So... The committee commissioners, bills, and overtures, which is the kind of super committee now, starts 8 o'clock Tuesday morning. And I had the privilege of serving on that committee, and it met all day, Tuesday, Tuesday night, and Wednesday morning. About 15 hours, according to the chairman of that committee. And um, dealt with about 48 overtures. So what happens now, in place of committee commissioners for the general overtures, they come to um, this Bills and Overtures Committee, which debates them at, with no time limits, which is different from the floor of the assembly. And it was a real privilege to serve on there. And there was oftentimes good, intelligent uh, discussion. It's a lot of emotional flaunting and stuff like that. But, but overall, it was, it was good discussion. This committee then reports to the floor uh, its recommendations either for an overture, an overture is a presbytery asking the assembly to do something, or against the overture. The committee can also have a minority report that takes the opposite position of, of the majority of the committee, and we'll talk about a couple of those. We had five such minority reports out of overtures committee this year, right? Four out of overtures, one out of somebody else, maybe? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so um, the... Uh, and so there's a good bit more debate that goes on, at least in, in that committee, but still. And there's 88 presbyteries now, and each presbytery is allowed to have one ruling elder and one teaching elder on that committee. We had a very good turnout, which is one of the reasons I think we had more ruling elders this year. You know, the way you just described the Overtures Committee, how it works, how, uh, how the membership— It's a delegated it, assembly. It's a delegated it assembly. It really is. Yeah. It really is. So— um, it's out of that that I'll be talking about, uh, and I've tagged, I've given names to some of the overtures. Some, two uh, did not come from bills and overtures. The others did. Uh, so the first uh, uh, vote I call illogical. The illogical vote was a vote that the General Assembly uh, leave the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals. This is a political lobbying group in Washington, D.C. that 50 years ago was conservative and would simply represent the churches that were part of it. 
It has increasingly become liberal in its pronouncements on the environment and immigration and many other areas. And the reason this is illogical is that every evangelical church, not just Reformed, but evangelical church, has left the NAE. So what you're saying is illogical is the PCA's vote right, to I'll remain. Right, explain why it's That's illogical. what you mean is yes. illogical. We even had a speech from the grandson of the gentleman that started the NAE who said to his grandson, I am surprised that the PCA is still in the NAE. This was 30 years ago. So. 1988. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said, I loved this. First of all, his grandfather is known as Mr. NAE. His grandfather said, I'm sure they'll leave soon. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, after it being spelled out, that speech, what the NAE has been standing for, that all the conservatives, the Southern Baptist, um, other evangelical groups have all left, and we are the last evangelical standing. Our stated clerk, who really should not have been allowed to speak on this because he is a chairman. chairman of the NAE committee, was allowed to sum up and basically, uh, illogically, against everything that had been said, convinced us to remain in the NAE. So this was the uh, a committee called Interchurch Relations, uh, which has always been more conservative than the permanent committee on interchurch relations. So the committee of commissioners for ICRC recommended, recommended leaving the yep. NAE. It was an overture, and they recommended leaving the overture. Yep, adopting the overture. Was there a minority report on that one or not? Um, I don't know that there was a minority report. I, I do know was, the chairman from the permanent committee yeah. got up and spoke against the committee of commissioners' right. I recommendation. Think was, I think that was the fifth minority yeah. report. Anyway, that's illogical. Everything we heard was why we should be out. Now, it's logical in this way, and this is what's frightening. The social justice agenda, which you've heard me say, is nothing but a new social gospel. That's what the NAE is all about now. It's not about the gospel. It's about social gospel, social justice, which is not the work of the church. In fact, the whole concept, many of us the whole time have been opposed to the NAE because it, it really does deny the uh, confession statement on the spiritual act of the church and when we should be speaking to the state uh, anyway. But it was quite amazing that with all the, um, but that illogicality marks our assembly now. Emotion and ad hominem, uh, for the most part, can carry uh, the day. Now, the next uh, motion was the most surprising vote. Well, can I say one thing first about this you NAE may. vote? I know that most of our attention uh, in observing the assembly is, is really reserved for the issues on human sexuality, so I don't want to get bogged down on this. But I do want to mention that this NAE vote was the most disheartening and discouraging one to me of the whole assembly. And Dr. Piper will tell you, I looked flat out depressed Wednesday <laughs> night after after that that vote happened. I, I just I thought it was a soiling of the of the wedding garment of the bride of Christ to keep us in there, along with new apostolic Reformation heretics and modalists and anti-Trinitarians and Pentecostals and, and all kinds of just bonkers groups that we can't even really describe as Christian, and yet here we are linking arms with them as co-combatants. Why don't we have Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses in there too, if, if, if we're going to do that? Um. <laughs> well, that's by the logicality of it is one yeah. moment we're, we're hearing arguments, well, this is simply the unity of the church. Next moment we're told, well, they're not the church, and thus yep. we don't have to worry about these doctrinal things. So it was quite foolish. Now, the next vote I call the most surprising vote of the assembly. 
there was a bit of a uh, Cervantes tilting at windmills uh, overture that came to the overtures committee uh, that the assembly, uh, for the sake of Covenant Seminary, withdraw from, separate Covenant Seminary from the assembly. Um, there was uh, a fun wager that it wouldn't get 25 votes in overtures. They got 30-something votes on overtures. But what really was surprising, about a fourth of the assembly voted in favor of letting Covenant Seminary uh, be independent and separate from uh, the nomination. And that's over against the plea on the seminary's part. We don't want to be separate and such as that. So that's surprising. I think it's causing people to think a bit about perhaps some of the things that are going on. Now what's been encouraging is the seminary now has finally distanced itself, at least in the committee commissioners, both from Revoice and uh, now uh, the president have said, we believe that same-sex attraction is wrong. That's in his videos earlier this year, that was never said. Now, by same-sex attraction, what we're talking about is a person who says, I am from birth a uh, homosexual, and that's who I am. I am attracted either as a man to men or as a woman to woman, uh, and that attraction is neutral. And con- it's not constitutive sinful. of my identity and my being. I said from birth. Yeah. And it's who I am. It's, constitu- it's constitutive of identity. And so it's often put with a Christian. I am a homosexual Christian, but celibate. Now, that, as we'll see in a bit, is the watershed issue that will come back up to the assembly uh, next year, but began uh, began um, this year. So what was encouraging also out of this surprising vote was to hear the president say, uh, I am uh, that we the seminary believes that same-sex attraction is a sin, and the Revoice Conference was wrong, and certain key seminary people have had positions either terminated or changed, such as the dean, who now is chaplain, and his daughter has been released from her position uh, at the PCA Church, Michelle Higgins. Just look her up online. And you will see Michelle Higgins is, the, for those of you that are older, the Angela Davis of the uh, 21st century. But that was a surprising vote. Um, and then there was the wasted motion. The wasted motion, there was a, uh, a very surprising uh, move out of the committee commissioners for mission to the world. And it was discovered, I guess we should have known this, that women were in executive positions overseeing ministers that the director, the national director for MTW, and on the fields, many of the directors on the field are women. Not just women. I think the issue was broader. Unordained persons were overseeing ordained men well, in but the field. The, the motion that came had to do had to do with women with specifically. Women specifically, I think uh, it should not be either. Uh, one of the men that we support in Honduras has a woman. Uh, over him, and he was the first ordained man uh, on that field. So there are a lot of unordained men going out. Anyway, it was a very good motion, and it, it was an eye-opener, I think, for a lot of the people in the assembly. Now, maybe it was not ordained. I, I don't I, don't I think it's not ordained because um, what a friend of mine in MTW told me, who's a, who was against the overture, so we have different views on this, but he said if this passed, it would affect uh, the livelihoods of 12 people, men and women. 
but you see, it's already affected the livelihoods of, of MTW missionaries who had to resign because they would not work under a woman. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, again, this is the ad hominem. But it was wasted. And, the, see, they should have been notified by the proper authorities of the denomination. They included in their motion the grounds for the overture, which is the reasons why you want to vote for it. We're not allowed to do that. Nor can uh, we... Uh, uh, the regular committee commissioner's report cannot be amended on the floor. I tried to amend it and take out the grounds. And uh, I, I was sure I was ruled out of order, and I was ruled out of order, that you can't do that. So, But they should have been told by the clerk, no, this this is not how you do this. And yep. so I'm a cynic, but powers that be should. So it had to be recommitted, and there wasn't time at this assembly uh, to deal with this. So for one more year now, uh, we'll have this problem, but that'll be back up at the next assembly, Lord willing, and even more people will be aware of the fact now that that ministers on the mission field are under the direction of non-ordained men, but also under the direction of women. It's it's heartbreaking if this means 12 people lose their jobs, but they shouldn't have had the jobs in the first place. I think the argument that's going to be made from the other side is that their positions are purely executive, that they don't oversee the spiritual nature of it the work. Spiritual but nature is not the issue. Authority is the Exactly. Issue. And this is the point that I would make. It's, it has the same, and this is where our assembly is often inconsistent. It is the same issue as facing us with the overtures uh, requesting that we allow unordained well, persons on there. our boards. And yeah, I know you're going to get there. <laughs> but. <laughs> so, now, the... Um, the most disturbing uh, motions that were passed have to do with the election of uh, a study committee, ad interim study committee, to study this whole issue of uh, sexuality, transgender, and same-sex attraction. Now, it's disturbing for a number of reasons. In the first place, a lot of people are so naive that they voted for this thinking, well, this will clear the air. No, this committee, I think it's very clear from where it came from and, uh, and such, uh, it's, it's hoped it's going to come in with a cover-up for same-sex attraction. If it does, uh, you can imagine what the next assembly is going to, uh, to be like. If they put a man on the committee that... Uh, as identifiable same-sex attraction, then there'll be motions to rule the whole thing out of order uh, next year. Now, what we did on bills and overtures, and I think it was wise, is we amended the original overture and made it very strong. So there have to be all ministers not having to have expertise in, in this area, written in these areas and, and things uh, uh, such as that. But uh, it's disturbing in that it was uh, it was a much larger majority than I thought there would be. I'm just innately opposed to study committees. They accomplish nothing. Uh, now, a committee that's all appointed to critique something like Federal Vision is different, but these, quote, neutral study committees, the reports mean nothing, and yet they'll be abused by either side, whoever likes what whatever is being uh, uh, said by that. So this is the thing to pray about in particular, uh, that this uh, committee would come in with a faithful biblical report and that the conservatives on the committee would be willing to uh, bring a minority report if there is, in fact, 
Um, now, was it today he was going to appoint the uh, committees? Act? That's what I was just looking up right now. I'm I'm not sure. We didn't even mention uh, the moderator. How I, and I'm going to go back to that. I but, realized that as I was talking. But the so. moderator is the one who's responsible right. for appointing members of study committees. We have two study right. committees that he'll be so populating. The, the moderator is Mr. Howie Donahoe. He's a, a friend of mine. And I thought overall he did a good job. He's been a faithful churchman for uh, decades, and he's always been a fellow that's uh, uh, open to other people and their positions, looking for compromise. Well, common ground. We don't need compromise or common ground on this particular um, issue. Unfortunately, the man that he defeated was even more qualified, was defeated two years ago um, uh, quite unjustly. Uh, and many of us thought because of that and because he saved the assembly by taking the chair two years ago that he would be a shoe-in. But I was shocked that maybe that would be another surprise vote. He only got about a fourth of the votes cast, which was shocking to was me. Was it a fourth or a third? Well, it was low, whatever it, it was. It was low. The intrigues of Presbyterianism. I don't call it Presbyterianism, Zach. Yeah, no, it's What we have in the nomination is a group called the National Partnership. And they've organized, uh, and they're trying to get people on committees, and they um, have been picking the moderator ahead of time now for at least uh, five or six assemblies. And after Mr. Bice did not get elected this time around, I don't think anybody from even a moderately confessional position is electable until some, something changes. I mean, don't don't you think that he'll get elected two years from now? I don't think he'd submit himself to it. Yeah. Yeah. He said his he, wife asked him not to do it this time. So he's a good man. It's he's just excellent man. He's humble, and he'd be a great moderator. Oh, he'd be a wonderful moderator. But but Howie did a good job. He was fair, uh, had a bit of humor, and so. Uh, but the moderator and the reason these the national partnership wants its moderator is when there's study committees, the moderator. Uh, gets to pick the study committees. And I think Howie will will be fair in terms of making sure all sides represented, but that's not what you really need, in my opinion, on this study uh, study committee. But um, Let's just say it. If Greg Johnson is appointed to the study committee on human sexuality, oh, there will be an assembly. uproar. Yeah, it'll be ruled out of order. Yeah. I don't think he would do that. Yeah, I hope not. I think it'll be an unidentifiable same-sex person, one who's not yet declared. Well, now, isn't the speculation that's going to surround that uh, is just going to be outrageous? The other disturbing vote has to do with my own presbytery, uh, Calvary Presbytery, that uh, uh, has a rule that's been upheld by the General Assembly on a number of occasions in the judicial process of when it will not allow a man to teach an exception to the standards. Well, the National Partnership realized that this committee that's called Review of Presbytery Minutes uh, Review of Presbytery Records. Records yeah. probably had the most power of the assembly in terms of, of shaping its theology. So, the, And it's because it's a lot of hard work. They've not wanted to be on it, but they realize now that, yes, we've got to. So they were just about a 51, 15.5% majority, and uh, they pressed this issue not to allow Calvary to take this position. We've already answered it once, and... We'll be answering again. I'm the moderator, and I've suggested to the administration committee that I just appoint a committee to uh, frame an answer and bring it to Presbytery in January. You have to give your answer to the SJC at this point, correct? Not yet, no. Mississippi no. Valley does, though. Oh, okay. They have to appear before the SJC. 
So under for those who haven't been following this, this is a bit Presbyterian deep state or or really into the weeds. Calvary Presbytery ordained a man, um, recognized a couple exceptions of substance, and told him, we'll ordain you, but you cannot teach your exceptions to our standards. And that is what RPR is saying is inappropriate at this point. This has been an issue that has come Which before Press the Church assembly twice. Which has been doing for years. was only a year ago yep. this was ever... Now consider this. If a presbytery cannot direct a man in the content of his teaching, then a presbytery in the PCA will have less power than your typical public school district, which determines what can and can't be taught in the classroom of those who are receiving a paycheck from the school district. And so why does that make any sense? Why are we being defanged um, as, as presbyteries when, in fact, any other institution of teaching or learning or instruction can rightly determine what can and cannot be taught by instructors on their payroll in their classrooms? That, that's to me, is, is the issue here, uh, especially when you're talking about a church and not a university or, or, or a graduate school or something like that. Um, but one of the unintended consequences that I think the progressives in RPR are inviting upon themselves are now you're going to have in almost every presbytery at least one or two men who are going to think this way. Okay, well, if we can't tell a man he can't teach his exception, then I'm just going to protest anyone well, no, it's, who it's has that an exception. Well, no, exception. If it's an exception that strikes against the vitals, then you can tell him not to teach it. So we're simply going to take every exception. As an exception which strikes the vitals. the vitals so that we can... Say Which is what, teach it. quote, faith and practice allows us to do. Yeah, that's exactly it's right. pure relativism. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, yeah. it's getting bizarre. It's gonna, if you ever sit in on a presbytery meeting where there are candidates coming before the presbytery for ordination, you will note that the most time-consuming, tendentious, and annoying things that take place in those presbytery meetings are sorting through a man's exceptions. And this is just going to be one additional layer that's going to make that even more difficult. Imagine how glorious life would be if we were all strict subscriptionists and didn't have to deal with these things. What was the most troubling moment at the assembly? For Zach, maybe it was in a vote. For me, it was when uh, Pastor, and I can mention his name now because he has both written this and stayed on the floor of the assembly. Greg Johnson uh, stated publicly both in the Christianity Today and now on the floor of the General Assembly that uh, he is a homosexual Christian and uh, is celibate, and he... Uh, is lonely and he has no family and it went on and on and on. Now the same man immediately after the assembly boasted of the victory for getting the study committee and then although they lost, quote, the battle, uh, the battle on uh, the Nashville State, which I'll explain in a moment, uh, they're going to win the war. So this was not a lonely man. This was a deceitful man. But how can a, And then he got applauded by his group. How can a man say, I, I am a homosexual Christian pastor who's celibate be applauded. Now, let me be clear. In our churches, we have men or women that are struggling with their sexual identity, and they profess Christ, then we work with them. But we don't say you cannot change. We say that Christ has broken the bondage of sin, and it might be a long struggle for you, but we will aid you in that struggle. In the same manner that homosexuals are welcome to come and attend our services, and we want to uh, befriend them and show them proper uh, love and as image bearers of God respect. But that's very different from saying, as I said earlier, this is who I am, this is my identity, I don't 
want to change, it's who I am. You know, at the end of the day, uh, the logic of this is they've said that God made them thus, and it would have been the, one of the cruelest things that God could be accused of. Because it, what it means is that God made this person to have same-sex attraction, and then in his word clearly prohibits uh, the satisfaction of that uh, attraction. So uh, that was appalling, and uh, it shows us right where that group of people is in our denomination. I was simply, I've said it before, I'm going to say it publicly, they need to leave, they need to go join another group that is comfortable with them. I don't know why in the world these people have to come and take a denomination that has certain historical principles and change it and shape it according to their own uh, image, but that's what they're trying to do. But there were also uh, some useful things done by the assembly. As I've tried to rate the assembly, I might say it was you know 70% good. Um, some of our conservatives uh, are very, very pleased uh, with the assembly. Others are very negative about uh, the assembly. Uh, the useful thing that we did, we uh, adopted well, one more wasted thing that we did, and that was we appointed a study committee to study um, domestic abuse, sexual and domestic abuse. Uh, Wasted because the resources are available. There's a plethora of resources available, and the assembly could have simply saved the money and prepared a bibliography, uh, uh, set up people that could be resources, but uh, budgeted $25,000 if the money can be raised. Uh, to make a study report that will have no uh, absolute no bearing whatsoever on uh, on anything, but useful. Well, useful is we uh, we adopted two things. We adopted what's called the Nashville Statement, it has fourteen articles with an affirmation and a denial. It was heavily debated, and again, the National Partnership was I got it right here was very opposed. Uh, uh, to it, uh, particularly because of uh, Article 7. Article 7 says, We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. We deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. So that's the closest the statement comes to condemning uh, same-sex attraction, but it's a, all 14 of these articles are biblical, both in their affirmation and denial. And they came out of the Committee of Commissioners. Uh, this was one of the minority reports then from bills and overtures, so it took longer to, uh, to debate it. And it passed... I think there was about, what, 37% against it, something like that? Yeah, something like that. That sounds about right. Um, and uh, there's some that are, think that's terrible, but that's basically a reverse of normal patterns. Normally, the, the strict subscriptionists are 40%. And so it, uh, it's an encouraging vote, and it was a useful vote. And the national statement is a useful statement. I'll be publishing it on my in my website to make it available uh, to you and along with that we commended to our denomination 
the study report of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, which is an excellent study report. It was very funny. Uh, on, on the Overtures Committee, everybody was uh, slamming the Nashville State because it was doctrinal and not pastoral. Well, the uh, RPCNA report is both doctrinal and pastoral. The whole concluding section is really pastoral advice on these various situations. It is an excellent report. I actually gave it to my class on man and sin uh, to read and will continue to use it. And so, uh, but the National Partnership people could not speak out against it as vociferously because it is pastoral. And so everything they've argued they wanted, which was simply the study committee, this study committee did. Why need another study committee? We got this study committee. We're not going to do any better uh, than what they have done. Uh, and unfortunately, many of the uh, celebrated defenders of the National Partnership kept saying, we'll have a study committee and we'll take this further. They actually were speaking in favor of a study committee in order to get a national statement, which disappointed me a great deal. Well, I think that was, um, that was calculated. I know. It disappoints me a great deal. Yeah. I don't think you had to do that to get this adopted. I hope not. But they gave away the, uh, the store um, uh, with that. But now, that's useful. But in connection with that, there were two uh, very good statements. One statement from Central Carolina, which dealt with sanctification. Well, there were three statements. But I'm talking about this one was, was – and then we had a minority report was voted down by the committee. They wanted to just put it under the um, – To refer it to Overture 4. Yeah, to the study committee. No, national statement, I think. No. Oh. They referred it to, to the study 42. committee. We uh, had a minority report, and it was really edited and well, really well done. Uh, and uh, that lost. Then By that point, the steamroller was moving quickly. It was uh, almost midnight, and because of a lot of wasted time, uh, and so nobody was up much of a mood to debate the issue. But it, uh, it was really good. I, I will, if I can do that legally, I'd like to publish that as well because it deals with sanctification and this whole issue, and it is very good. Hey, just a reminder, at this point in the discussion, all of this is viewable online. The PCA um, General Assembly live stream was recorded and is published online on Vimeo, on the PCA's official Vimeo page. and But also, motions that lose are not published. Maybe not the Minority report's not published well, unless you the have The video a, is online. Yeah, but it's not read. Yeah, but you can... Oh, it wasn't read? It was just submitted? No. Yeah. No. I think they should have read. I thought that whole presentation of that... When Mel Duncan read the Nashville Statement, it was a very effective strategy. Yeah. Yep. And I thought 37 should have been read uh, because uh, at that time of day, a lot of folks aren't reading anything. No. There's not much time for reading during no. the week either. No. So um, that's a, a thumbnail sketch of what went on. Uh, I am not at this point overly discouraged about the denomination I would warn everybody that these movements now to start a new denomination are uh, wrong-headed. If it were time to leave, we don't need another reform denomination. You know, we've not had a great track record uh, in starting reform denominations. Uh, uh, a lot of them have splintered, the small, what we call micro-presbyteries. Uh, uh, 
Um, I've advocated and will continue to advocate a convocation of sessions. Maybe this year is a good year to at least to have one discuss uh, when is it time to leave uh, and then to have representatives come from uh, the Associated Reformed Presbyterians and the RCUS, Reformed Church U.S., and the Orthodox Presbyterians uh, and lay out the case for coming to them as well as have a speaker argue for a new nomination. But this unilateral, we're going to start a new nomination, we're going to have a, a steering committee and all that. I just, it's it's very premature, it's very wrong-headed, um, there's going to be a meeting in connection with the Reformed Adventistic Fellowship. Um, and frankly, I encourage you not to go. Not to the, go, go to the conference. It's a great conference. But don't encourage this, uh, this other, uh, other movement. So I'm asked about the future nomination at this point. It's very important that we get our ruling elders uh, to the assembly. Another thing to keep in mind is that anything that's done substantively at the assembly will have to be passed by the presbyteries, where the ruling elders are active. And uh, the heart of the denomination, I still say, is much more than than 40% uh, confessional. I think that it's easily 60% um, when this thing goes to uh, presbyteries. And so it's just not time to be talking um, about leaving because of this uh, this assembly. Dr. Piper, there's one decision that I don't think you discussed, and that was the decision to, or the decision not to uh, allow unordained persons on oh, the board. that was, of and course. That's, that's that, pretty I, important. No, it's very important. It's under my useful. I knew I said, thank you. This is very important and very encouraging. Uh, we've had attempts now, we've had attempts to get women deacons, after this, and this is, shows you the abuse of the study committees. After the study committee on uh, role of women two years ago, we're having attempts now. Last year it was to get women on the boards of a Covenant College, Covenant Seminary, other of our boards and agencies. Um, that was defeated 60-40. Uh, this year uh, it was a bit broader, in its, but people knew what they were after, and that was to put unordained men or women on boards uh, that was soundly defeated in bills and overtures that maybe was that a, maybe the other minority report and um, it was fairly soundly defeated on the floor of the assembly now that i think is quite significant that because everybody knew that what this really was was to get women into these positions uh, on on the committees and so uh, our, because we are grassroots, because we're Presbyterian, because you should be a member of the court if you're going to be on a committee of the court, it's different from church committees. Um, the only people that are at General Assembly to vote are ruling and teaching elders, occasionally deacons because they hold office in the church, and it's not just a local office. It's a Presbyterian and Assembly office as well, uh, can serve on, on committees. And we allow for unordained men and women to be on advisory uh, committees. And so you, there's nothing that hinders getting their counsel. But um, so that was that was the most encouraging. I, that's what I had, Daniel, the most encouraging vote of the assembly. Thank you, Zach. And it took place Friday morning after many, 
men had already left because yeah. you know we all book our travel not thinking things are going to extend into Friday morning that are really significant. Right. And I remember watching the live stream from the airport and and being really relieved not only that the overtures were defeated um, in accord with the overtures committee's recommendation, but also that the margin was huge. And so, because I, I was in the airport with half of Calvary Presbytery, all confessional men. So I was worried about how that vote was going to go. Thank you for that. All right, we have time for some questions. So earlier today, I sent out a blast. I said, send us some questions that you want me to ask Dr. Piper um, about PCA, GA. Um, here's a basic one. When should we expect a completed report from the Study Committee on Human Sexuality? Do you have any idea? It shouldn't take more than a year. Uh, Usually by April. It should come out in the spring. Uh, I think that, again, politics, they might want to avoid Birmingham and the next year's assembly is in Missouri, which has been a presbytery that has basically cultured, protected revoice. Uh, Greg Johnson's a member of that presbytery. Uh, and so I think if there was an attempt to extend it a year, this just not a very broad area of study that that might get defeated, but I know they prefer not to deal with it in Birmingham. So, Lord willing, it will come to us in the spring. Zach is cringing because I'm speaking a bit more openly. No, I'm not cringing. I'm just thinking that's a pretty, it's a pretty scary thought. It is a very scary I thought. I mean, if they would, if they would be so daring as to, because no one likes going to St. Louis for anything, except certain people for seminary, and so that they would want to push it off to to the following year is uh, that would be pretty. Um, what would be the word? Conniving, I think. Um, Dr. Piper, considering the timeline of the Federal Vision, Wilkins, Lightheart, and Louisiana Presbytery events, when could we see rulings and charges associated with Revoice? And that's kind of linked up with another question. Do you think that Greg Johnson will face censure or discipline from the PCA for his positions on same-sex attraction? If not, why not? Uh, I think that uh, there will be repercussions uh, with respect to Revoice. I can't speak any more broadly to that right now. But uh, I think the assembly will have opportunity um, uh, to deal with revoice. Uh, Lord willing, also the assembly will have opportunity to deal with uh, Greg Johnson. Either the study committee itself will say that such a man shouldn't be a minister and or charges uh, will be brought against him. I am strongly of the opinion after his speech and after his article in Christianity Today that he should not be a minister and that charges should be brought against him. Uh, if there are rule elders in that presbytery who listen to me, then uh, I would encourage you, this is not a matter of Matthew 18. These are public uh, statements to the world, to the General Assembly. They're contrary to Scripture and our standards. And I, so I'm hoping that, uh, well, what I'm hoping for is that Greg Johnson would repent and uh, begin to seek um, a change in Christ by the gospel, but leave the ministry until till that happens. So now I'm way out on a limb. No, Dr. Piper, I think that you're, um, you're right in the mainstream of a confessional perspective on these issues based on what I've, what I've been hearing and reading online, and I don't think I exist in such an echo chamber that, um, that <laughs> I can... You definitely don't, Zach. You know, I've, I've listened to a lot of different folks with a lot of different perspectives. Oh, by the way, if you're a member of Greg Johnson's church or ruling elder, invite the poor man over for Christmas Day. I mean, come on.
Greg, you can come over to my house for Christmas if you want. You can come to my house too. <laughs> yeah, that was obviously not true. I mean, I can't. I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine. Um, I I do not want to receive your ashes or your cremains upon your death, though. What? Oh, that's right. <laughs> that was another thing he said. Um, Dr. Piper, this is a great question. When are PCA conservatives going to be as politically organized for the General Assembly floor debates as the National Partnership, which plan for these moments and informs their delegates real time during debates? I watched it play out right in front of me and was amazed at the spectacle and its efficiency. We cannot run away from the hardware and software of modern political action within the denomination. Surely we have good men who could be tasked with the work. It is a good question. Um, What we have here is a principle or conscience issue. It is reprehensible that anybody on the floor of the assembly has to be told how to vote. I think I've never gone to an assembly, or maybe it was in the Overtures Committee this year, that there'd be at least one or two things that I changed my mind on. Maybe I changed back after I changed it once even. But um, the whole idea of a general assembly is to deliberate, to pray, and to think. National Partnership has determined ahead of time an agenda. They're no different from the Democrats uh, in Congress. So that when Nancy Pelosi says you're going to vote this way, regardless of what their convictions might be, they kowtow and they vote her way. That is reprehensible. It's contrary to everything about biblical church government. It is going on. Uh, I know who the whips are. One in particular was on the um, uh, Bill's Novatures. Uh, I was surprised. I said, how is he a leader? He's incompetent. And he said, well, he's a bully but he's the one that tells them how to vote. He says very little, but he says just enough so that they all know to vote yay or nay. Now, that's wrong, but we could organize better than we do. Now, this year we did some organization on trying to get good men at the Overtures Committee. That was effective, Uh, and uh, I did some of that. David Hall kind of organized that. Uh, That was good, and we'll keep doing that. We need to do that now with uh, review of Presbyterian records, uh, something that we used to have a very important influence uh, on. But uh, it's been suggested to me, and I agree with this, that I think it's time that we have a pre-assembly meeting and say, here are the important issues. Here are what we think, uh, biblically, Uh, these issues mean and how we should vote. Now, you must vote for yourself, but these are the issues, and we think that um, this needs to be defeated or that passed. I'm willing to participate in something like that, and and we'll try to to help. It'll be very public, though. We're not going to have a secret meeting. And everybody in the denomination will know we're going to meet on Monday night, and we're going to talk about the issues before the assembly. So we could do more than we're doing uh, in the same way— we need to do much more uh, writing. When Reagan was elected president, it was a bit surprising because by that point, people thought the print press was already had lost its effectiveness. Um, and National Review simply showed how the pamphleteering that had been taking place the 10 years before Reagan's election had changed the political uh, landscape. And so it really is... Uh, um, important that we get good short pieces done on the issues that are coming before the assembly from tract wars to tweet storms i think the future of the pca will be fought just as much on social media and in emails as it is being fought out or duked out on the floors of presbyteries and general assembly 
speaking of which, Dr. Piper, uh, three related questions here. How do you see the future of the PCA? What do you make of the progressive agenda to outlive the old guard? And what encouragements or advice do you have for young men in the denomination committed to the PCA, biblical fidelity and confessional integrity? Okay. Well, I've kind of touched on this, what I see of the future of the PCA. I think it is uh, a very serious and dangerous time in our denomination. Now, this has been going on. It's not something new. When we got good faith subscription, we changed the whole structure of Presbyterianism in, in the Presbyterian Church in America and made a way for relativism so that every Presbyterian decides uh, what doctrines are important and what doctrines are not. Now, again, because of teaching and instruction, you're going to find that there are certain doctrines that everybody uh gets agreed on, they're not important, such as the Sabbath, uh, images of Christ, worship, uh, creation. Uh, and so uh, that's that changed the nature of the church. The restructuring of the assembly changed the nature of the church. One of the connected questions here is, what would the best schedule for a GA look like? Well, let's get rid of the convention model uh, and the seminars and such as that. It was very interesting when they were testing the uh, electronic voter, the clickers, the question was, how many people here attended an, a, a, a seminar? It's only about 28% of the people voting even did that. Um, and so, and have, uh, now if they have seminars the day that committee commissioners are going to work um, Monday afternoon, um, Tuesday morning. Then you can do seminars then. But start the assembly Tuesday at, at 1 um, and uh, finish uh, Thursday night. Uh, get rid of the seminars. Get rid of the um, the dog and pony shows where the, each committee gets to do its PR thing. Um, Informational reports. Yeah, their dog and pony shows. You know, one, a friend of mine said we could put the reports from fraternal delegates, the informational reports, into the committees of commissioners and have those committees receive them on behalf of the entire assembly. Yeah, you know, the— Though the fraternal delegates were useful this year. <laughs> fraternal delegates, though, I think that's part of Presbyterianism. I don't resent the fact—and they, and they've been very disciplined, five minutes each. Yep. And I think we rotate, so it's not every every one every year now. It's on a rotating basis. So I think that's useful, but— yeah, so there's some things. But anyway, the as I said, the the many of the Presbyterians are still fairly strong. My motto is one church at a time, one day at a time. I see churches and individuals who have continually to move uh, in a more confessional direction. And a lot of this stuff is frightening uh, the basis of, of our denomination. So... I don't think there's any warrant right now for leaving. I need to get a paper edited. I've written um, where I use uh, Owen Calvin and Perkins on terms of when it's time to leave. It's time to leave. Um, so young men come in, uh, go to churches where you can commit uh, to being uh, a long-term pastor, uh, and then at Greenville Seminary we're committed to. Uh, the church, to church men, to men being involved in Presbytery. We need uh, our pastors to be involved at Presbytery. We need pastors to train elders to be involved at, uh, at Presbytery. So, uh, yes, young men, uh, don't bail ship on us. Um, 
Let's pray. It's God's, it's Christ's church. Uh, and let's pray that he would have mercy on us. There was three parts to that question. I think I've missed one. Um, I think, oh, what do you make of the progressive agenda to outlive the old guard? You know, this was stated by Greg in that tweet that yeah. he made that he then retracted and apologized for. Retracted. Uh, he apologized for the tweet, too. Um, Though I don't think he would, he backed down from his I, stand on this. I met a lot of under 40 conservatives at the assembly. You know, this business that uh, uh, we're dinosaurs, no way. Um, I'll just say that uh, you folks need to support seminaries that are confessional and conservative. Uh, and send your young men to such seminaries. Uh, we're not the only one, but I can guarantee you that if you send your men to us, they're not going to be taught um, anti-confessional, anti-scriptural positions, and they will be taught uh, to be churchmen. We can't uh, guarantee the results, no. but we can guarantee the content of the teaching. Right, what we're going to do. Um, and so... Uh, there's other conservative seminaries. Support them with students. Support them with your funds and your prayers. Uh, we just need to counteract the denominational seminary by pouring. We need to pour young men into the denomination uh, from uh, the reform seminaries that are much more consistent and conservative. And I'll say this: um, you know, with with teaching elders, it's you know, it's a bit different, but. When you meet young men who have views that are out of accord with our standards in ways that are just baffling to the imagination, bear with them and 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 seek to be persuasive and and patient and point them to the scriptures and direct them to Christ and say, but brother, what of this? But brother, what of that? Yeah, at a certain point, you're going to run up against obstinacy and um, we just have to leave a man to follow his course. But I think there is a place in our current day and age for persuasion. And I know I've been persuaded in, in many ways by men on different sides of issues over various things. And, you know, none of us are static stock characters, at least I hope not. And we have a, a tendency of casting those who oppose us as such. But let us never lose faith that the Holy Spirit can render change in a man's heart and in a man's thinking, as well as he's confronted with the scriptures. Yeah. Another thing is encouraging was the... Uh the young under 40 ruling elders at this assembly, and they were much more articulate yeah. and useful. Hey, Scott Hedgecock from Pacific Northwest Presbytery knocked it out of the park. And the young man is at Leno from uh, James River. Yeah. Ex-Marine. Yeah, Rich Leno. Yeah. Now, I don't think he's under 30. but um, I said 40. Or is, is Rich under 40? Well, I think he, might be, he might be 45. He's always been articulate. He's a lawyer, I think. So, um, But... <laughs> So uh, anyway, I was pleased with the ruling elder speeches yeah. both in the committee of bills and overtures and on the floor of the assembly. There was a lot more articulate ruling elder involvement this year. Yeah, that was that was deeply encouraging. I would love to have some of you men as ruling elders in a church I go to pastor one day. Um, Dr. Piper, I have a question. Um, two related overtures here, kind of related to the questions that have been submitted. We've voted pretty decisively to keep Covenant Seminary on board with the PCA. Praise the Lord. We've also voted to remain in the NAE and to exert influence there. Praise the Lord, and all things be praised. What no, can all things give thanks? And all, yeah, that's right. All things give thanks. There, you're right. What can we do to 
actually live up to the rhetoric that was espoused, where we can actually provide oversight and get more muscularly involved in Covenant Seminary and the NAE. We can do nothing in the NAE. You know, our stated clerk is there, and uh, he is our voice. Uh, and so the only thing that you can do on that is is you give money to the administrative committee, you simply say this cannot be used for NAE participation. The dues is $25,000 $25, a year. That's compared to $1,000 a year for NAPARC. Yeah. And I know from NAPARC, from not just one denomination, but many, that the PCA members – uh, that to go to Nay Park, look down Nay Park with great disdain, and insult everybody else that's there. Now, Covenant Seminary, um, I think that sessions need now to hold them accountable. Said you've stated publicly that same-sex attraction is a sin. We want to see that happening. We want to see you teaching that. We want to see you withdrawing statements supporting students that are same-sex attracted. You can't just be saying it, and you're still going to graduate these guys. You've already published in the PR stuff. Uh, and so, uh, and uh, sessions are the ones that need to be involved with the seminary. You do have a voice. And pocketbooks, you know. Again, whatever the reasons, uh, it was great to hear the president of Covenant Seminary uh, come out as he has come out at this uh, assembly now, both in personnel changes, in Michelle Higgins, and in uh, stating that you know, revoice is wrong and gay, gay same-sex attraction is wrong. Stay on that with him. Um, you pastors write him and, and interact. Uh, I like Mr. Dalby. We have been together for some stuff in Korea, and we had good fellowship. So uh, let's take him at his word now and, and encourage him because he'll catch flack as well um, uh, from the partnership. And so he, he needs to know then that we're, we're going to be there to encourage him. You know, I think it would be a PR coup of the century if Covenant Seminary uh, or men there led the, led the way in correcting some of Greg Johnson's statements on the floor and, and perhaps even bringing charges or admonitions against him. Well, Dr. Piper, thank you for your time. I always enjoy doing this with you, Zach. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things we do all year, debriefing the PCA General Assembly. Um, if you haven't yet listened to it, we did an OPCGA debrief uh, with Phil Proctor earlier this week. Give that a listen. He described the assembly for our OPC brethren as uh, delightfully boring <laughs> and speedy. Uh, I'll be doing the RPCNA uh denominational debrief next week and i've yet to schedule one for the arp but as you know i i tend to do a, a handful of reformed and presbyterian denominations from around the world and we'll, we'll almost certainly get the bpc and the rcus at, at the very least covered this summer and probably the free church of scotland continuing synod maybe we'll expand it a bit more and include the free church of scotland or the epcew or some other bodies we haven't done in the past Thank you again for listening to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.